Well, good morning. I am very pleased to be here this morning, and uh, I wasn't uh, looking forward to it. I didn't really um, like jump up and down when Matt asked me if I wanted to preach on money. I said, oh, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, as one of the elders here at Central, I, uh, I was trying to find uh, you know, a Bible verse to get me out of preaching, and I found the actual opposite was true. And in fact, it's actually part of the job description of elder to teach. So here I am. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> He's on vacation in Palm Springs right now. <laughs> So, today, uh, you know, I have the privilege of closing out our three-week series on generosity, and I've titled my sermon today, Fear Factor, uh, for the reason that the passage I've chosen, Psalm 112, has a lot to say about generosity, fear, and righteousness. And so, when we dig into the the scriptures, uh, you know, we we kind of ask God to speak to us, and it's said a few things to me, and so I want to share them with you this morning. Um... Part of why I think maybe Matt asked me to talk on this is actually my profession is uh, as a financial planner. That's what I do from day to day. Um, I work at RBC here in town, and I talk to people about money all the time. So he thought, well, you're probably way more comfortable than me talking about money, and it might be true. And um, I didn't actually plan to become a financial planner. I didn't even really want to do that. you know, when I was growing up, or even in early college years. But what happened, uh, and I'll just share my personal story with you, is that uh, as I was, you know, in young adult years, and I was faced with becoming an adult and, and uh, starting to make decisions for myself and decisions including money and how to use it and what to do with it and how, how that's going to be used in my life, I was making a lot of really dumb decisions. Uh, I got myself into quite a lot of debt, and uh, I'm not really sure why, looking back at it, I could probably pick out a few things. I was trying to impress other people, maybe, or, uh, you know, I just had this desire in my heart for things, and so I would just purchase them. I didn't really evaluate what I was doing. That aside, I got myself into a lot of debt, and, you know, although I attended church regularly, I wasn't in the habit of giving. From time to time, I would put a little bit of money in the offering plate, and I just didn't, like, yeah, Jesus is important. I believe in him, but how does that relate to giving? So I didn't really have a concise or well-thought-out anything with respect to faith and money. But something interesting happened, uh, as God is uh, apt to do quite often, is he uh, spoke to me where I was at. And I was in my devotional book. I had got, my dad actually gave me a devotional book on Proverbs. And uh, I was reading through it. And I was discovering that, boy, a lot of these verses have a lot to do with money. Like, huh, I've never really heard money talked about in church much. This is really, wow. And I'm not really doing any of these things in Proverbs. I'm, I'm in debt like crazy. And it says, don't be in debt. And, and uh, so on. And so I wasn't using money well, the way that God intended. <clears throat> uh, in the meantime, I, you know, I went to, to and from work in my car, and I was listening to a Christian radio, and it was sort of a Christian radio finance program talking about money. And uh, you know, I, was, I can remember like that particular day, he was talking about how uh, followers of Jesus 
really need to give uh, and give regularly uh, to, to the work of the Lord. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not doing that at all. And here I'm here reading all these verses and, wow, my finances aren't in good shape. Uh, and I'm not really doing what God's asking me to do. I was convicted deeply by the word of God. And so I dug into that and I thought, oh, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I've got to give because I've got to obey God because he clearly says that. So, but I thought, well, I, I'm, I have like negative money here. I have no money to give. I, I have less than zero in, in my bank account. What am I going to give? But still, God was prompting me like, no, you, you got to, when you, when you get paid, you got to give. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. How am I going to pay my bills? And so what happened is that I started, and I just, like, it went all against all logic and all rationale, but I started. I started giving a bit, and then God asked me to give a little more, and the funniest things happened <laughs> during that time is that God began blessing my finances in uh, not necessarily like giving me more money, because I obviously wasn't very good at managing that yet, but in providing a content heart. Uh, so I, didn't, I no longer desired a lot of the things I did before. Uh, just in innumerable ways of people providing for me that you know, I, I just never saw them before. His grace to me was powerful, and it spoke powerfully because he, one, convicted me to give. I did that, and then he provided for me in unexpected and, I'll say, divine ways. So I share that because why, why, why am I talking about generosity? Well, there's a lot and lot, lot, lot of verses in the Bible. There's over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money, how to manage it, how to give it, what to do with it. So if you're curious about that, you can dig and you will find uh, in the scriptures many, many verses about money. Through that time, I was so convicted and so amazed that God could work through me uh, in my own finances that I actually decided I'm going to actually do this for work. I, I, I felt like, okay, that, that's definitely my calling in life to do that. So that's how I became uh, a financial planner and why I'm talking to you today. <laughs> so there's... Uh, interesting thing in the passage we're going to talk about today, um, it talks a lot about uh, fear and generosity and righteous living. So we're going to read it in just a second. And, but I'm just going to frame it with this, is that I think if you're like me and you, you're observing the world around us at the moment, you might have noticed that we live in a time and age where people are beset with anxiety and fear about all manner of things. I've noticed certainly that it seems that it's gotten quite a lot worse in my lifetime. Uh, you know, according to statistics, 40 years ago, there's maybe 3 to 5% of the population that dealt with some kind of anxiety or, or, or uh, mental disorder related to anxiety in their life. Now, estimates are between 30 and 50% of people will have some kind of health impacting mental illness related to anxiety in their life, which is alarming. 3 to 5 out of 10 of us are, uh, it's a tenfold increase. So it's definitely a problem. Uh, it's very likely you or someone very close to you uh, has, has or is dealing with this kind of issue right now. It's definitely not a new thing. Uh, you know, the scriptures definitely relate to fear and anxiety uh, 
um, in many books, including many of the Psalms, lots of stories about people like Moses or like worried about stuff all the time. And God meets them where, where they are. I mean, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is written, written by like a depressed rich dude. So just go there if you're <laughs> interested in finding out what it's like to follow God and be kind of in a funk. Um, so the question I have for today as we read the scripture is, does scripture offer insight into our modern afflictions of, of anxiety and fear and depression and these kind of mental illnesses? And is there a solution? Can we find it in the scriptures? What is it? Uh, what does it have to do with generosity and righteousness? So I'm hoping today to connect the dots for you and uh, let, the, let the word of God speak. So we're going to turn to Psalm 112. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to dig in. Psalm 112. The righteous will never be moved. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray as we move on. Oh, Lord God, uh, I'm humbled today to be in front of all these people to share your word this morning. I pray that we would uh, be spoken to by your spirit, that something would stir in our hearts that you would have for us today. Lord, I can't say anything that's going to change anybody's mind or, or soften anybody's heart, but Lord, your spirit can. So we ask for your spirit to move in us today, to bring your word to life inside our hearts and minds, and that we would, uh, we would honor you with what we learned today. Lord God, amen. So, just for a little bit of background on Psalm 112, uh, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, they were written by many different authors over different times. Um, and Psalm 112 is likely to have been written during Israel's period of captivity by the Assyrians. So it wasn't really like a hope-filled time for them. Uh, they were in, you know, imprisoned basically as slave labor and so on in, uh, in Assyria. It's, uh, it's paired with Psalm 111. So if you want to read them as a pair, I highly recommend it. They speak to one another. So Psalm 111 is celebrating the character and works of God. And Psalm 112 celebrates the character and contentment of the godly man. So like Psalm 111 before it, Psalm 112 is an acrostic psalm. Several psalms are acrostics. It's meant to be a mnemonic device to aid in memorization. Basically, each, uh, letter or, or, uh, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so there's 22, there's 22 lines in Psalm 112 that meet up. <clears throat> They're in alphabetical order. So each, uh, you can, if you know your ABCs in Hebrew, then you can memorize the psalm. 
So it was a mnemonic device for kids and people as they were going about their day to, to uh, recite it and encourage them to be emboldened, to live a, a, a God-fearing, uh, encouraged life. A 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this regarding the connection between Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. It bears the same relation to the proceeding which the moon does to the sun. For while the first declares the glory of God, the second speaks of the reflection of the divine brightness in man born from above. So clearly, the character of God is reflected in man. Psalm 112, 111 and 12 are intended to embolden the reader and encourage us to fear God and have that godly fear inspire our generosity and righteousness so that we can claim the promises that are given in the passage. So, in a society beset with anxiety and depression and all, all manner of, of uh, you know, crippling uh, fears, what do you do uh, when that kind of thing happens? How do you deal with it? Do you double down on what's maybe not worked so far, but you're just like, oh, I need to give it more effort because that's not working? Or do you... Uh, strain your health and relationships to the breaking point? Uh, you know, what, what, what's happening to you when you're dealing with, with things that bring you great amounts of anxiety and fear? Do you follow worldly advice? Where do you go to get advice? Or do you trust God, fear him, and seek his will and follow his commands? Sometimes even if they seem strange. And why does the text link generosity, righteousness, and fear? So, um, <clears throat> this is the final uh, message of three messages on generosity, but you know, we haven't even really talked about money yet. So, what does money have to do with uh, fear and anxiety? So, um, just there was a survey done last year, late last year it was released, uh, con uh, conducted on behalf of the Canadian Financial Planner Standards Council here in Canada, and it found that 42% uh, of Canadians rank money as their greatest stress. Uh, that stress is driving Canadians to, this is how it, the survey uh, respondents said it was impacting them, that is making them lose sleep, reconsider their past financial decisions, argue with their partners, and lie to their family and friends. This is the number one issue above all other issues in their life that caused them stress. Another recent study indicated that 75% of North Americans have regular worry about their finances. Three out of four of us regularly worry and have anxiety about our money. And yet another study just, just in January indicated that 46% of Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. That would be stressful. <clears throat> so I've worked in uh, personal finance for about 15 years now, and uh, I would say overwhelmingly most people attribute their money problems to a lack of money. Now, that is good at face value, like, yeah, I don't have enough money, I need more money. Yeah, that's probably true, maybe. But what happens is that I can really confidently say that that's not the case. There is a base level of sustenance that we all need, and many people around the world go with much, 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 much less than, than we do on a daily basis. And I can say from speaking to people at every st station in life, from people living $2 a day to multimillionaires, uh, more money doesn't solve your money problems. And I, I will add this clarification. More specifically and significantly in relation to the text we're studying today is that 
more money does not ease our money, fear, and anxiety. Got that? More money doesn't take away your fears. Money fears can be triggered by all kinds of events, positive and negative. Fluctuations in financial markets, the cost of real estate, the cost of living, uh, accidents, relationship lo- uh, troubles, job losses, you name it. Positive things like marriage and family, children, uh, graduating from university or college. And, and sometimes even if nothing's changing, when things are stable, there's still this underlying sort of anxiety about our finances, just staying on budget and uh, saving for retirement and that sort of thing. Often, what I've seen is that these events and just the day-to-day anxiety results in, I'm going to say, a crippling anxiety that leads to inaction. So this is totally different than the person described in Psalm 112. Wouldn't you agree? It's quite different. So Psalm 112 says this. It says, verse 4, it says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. It's well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely, and he's given to the poor. This person, here, reflecting God's character, is not anxious. Quite the opposite. He indicates a, the passage indicates a real peace, an immovable lack of fear, a deep, deep trust in the Lord. Why? So in the, at this point, I, I was, when I was studying this, I was re- really reminded of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which describes three different servants. Maybe you know it. Uh, two of whom were commended and, and quite faithful in serving their master uh, and were given quite large sums of, of money to manage for their masters, and one who was absolutely crippled by in a, like a totally inappropriate fear and didn't do the right thing to take appropriate action to serve his master. So I, you know, I would want to be uh, the, one of the two servants who, were, who the master had said after they'd worked, like, well done, good and faithful servant. But the one who was crippled by his inappropriate fear uh, and inaction was condemned, uh, basically, to the depths of hell. And, wow, okay, uh, this is obviously quite serious. We actually can't and aren't allowed to let our fears and anxieties restrict us from doing the right thing. We need to be more like the person described in Psalm 112. So, there is... I would say, uh, in our culture today, definitely, I would would say, a secret, uh, ancient solution that Psalm 112 is alluding to here to uh, the the solution for for fear, stress, and anxiety about money. Any clues on what it is? Clues actually in the passage. It says, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. So he's saying, I'm trusting in God. I have a steady heart. I'm not afraid because of it. I'm going to give. Regular, proportional discipline and free giving has resulted in documented evidence through the, in the Bible and many other places uh, over millennia of happier, more productive, healthier, and wealthier people. There are many ancient scriptures that indicate this. 
And in fact, there's at least 11 principles found in the scriptures on how we can unlock this ancient solution to our fears about our money. Moving from money stress and financial fear to a firm, steady heart, trusting in God. I'm going to go through them one by one. So the first principle is just to give. Christians are actually defined by giving. It's part of our identity. It's part of who Christ was. He was the most generous giver. He didn't withhold anything. He gave it all. Now we follow him, and we should, as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, give as he has decided in his heart to give. Or, as Jesus indicates in Matthew 6, he said, when you give. Not if you give, when. Giving's assumed for followers of Jesus. The second thing is to give generously. So Jesus told stories, and many of those stories had to do with commending people who gave generously and with total abandon. So whether it was uh, lavish displays of affection for him by pouring expensive perfume on him, or uh, the humble dropping of two small coins in the offering uh, by the widow in, in Mark 12 or Luke 21, Jesus commends the generous giver, somebody who's le- leaving it all out there. The third is giving regularly. We're creatures of habit, and if you're like me, broken habits are very hard to start again. Uh, I, if I start not going to the gym or start not doing this or not... It's, it's bad. It takes a lot of effort to get it going again. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the principle here is whenever we get paid, so whether it's weekly or monthly or biweekly, whatever, is that when you get paid, you give. The idea in the principle is actually found New Testament and Old. Uh, so the this is the principle is the principle of first fruits. So giving whenever you're prospered, as the text says. So it goes way back, Abraham and so on. Uh, so how that really works out in our lives today is that most of us don't have like a, a crop. And um, Ron actually said I could bring carrots uh, when they come out of my garden each year, but, but it's not going to be very much. I'm sorry, and I like them more than... <laughs> I'm not really willing to give them. So we kind of live in a first fruits, people don't really understand that, so I'm just going to explain how it works in my life. So if I get paid, then I give. So when I see my bank statement, it goes payday, and then I give. And it should be one of the first things I do. Fourthly, giving deliberately. Having a purpose or a sense of purpose about your giving. That is, knowing what God's calling you to do with your giving. So praying about it and seeking his will. Don't just carelessly give. Hold fast to the answers to the prayer that God gives you. And if you want your mind and heart to be aligned with God, we should heed what Jesus says in Matthew 6. It says, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, I, I was saying this in the first service, but uh, I, I think when I meet Jesus, I'm going to ask him to just slightly amend this text slightly. Um, I think he should have included children in there, where children destroy, because I have three boys, and they destroy everything. <laughs> nothing, nothing. Like, literally yesterday, we, my son and I went out for pizza, and came back home with two pizzas, and he was very excited to bring them in the house. Opens the door. 
bam, hits the other car. Like, big old scrape right down the side. You're like, dude, come on. So I'm, I'm going to take it up with Jesus when we get there. <laughs> so I believe primarily that we should give to the work of the local church, right, deliberately, uh, where we worship with others, where we're blessed by the teaching of the word, where we're blessed by, uh, to hear the, where we invite others to hear the good news of Jesus, where we fellowship with each other. This doesn't exclude us giving in other ways, of course, but I believe that this is the model of giving found in Scripture. Galatians 6.6 6 says this, with respect to giving to support your pastors. Let the one who's taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Number five, give voluntarily. 2 Corinthians 9 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. This may sound like Paul's not advocating for regular giving, but giving only when led. But this isn't quite the full story. Paul was talking about special offerings in this case, and the principle is the same. We should give above and beyond when called upon, but shouldn't feel compelled to do so for any other reason than the Lord's leading. Do we read our Bible only when we feel like it? Do we remain faithful to our spouse only when we feel like it? No, of course not. And we may go above and beyond the minimum in any area of our life, including giving. The thing is, I've found that when I catch a vision for what God's doing, I give more, and I actually want to give more. Number six is giving sacrificially. Of all the 11 things, I found that, find this one the hardest to talk about. So I, distill, I would distill it down to this one question you need to ask yourself. What am I sacrificing? What am I giving up by giving to God's work? In the story of the poor widow giving her two small coins, uh, it says, Jesus says, commends the widow's faith in Luke 21. It says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. This was the true sacrificial giving modeled. And again, in 2 Corinthians 8, which you heard about a couple weeks ago, Paul applauds the Macedonian believers for the same thing, giving as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. The most convicting thing I've read about it outside of Scripture is C.S. Lewis, which he wrote in Mere Christianity regarding sacrificial giving. He said, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words... If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. This is the hardest to live by uh, personally for me as well. Number seven is giving excellently. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, referring to their giving. Hebrews 10 says this, don't neglect to meet together as, the habit of, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more, <clears throat> and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And let us consider how to stir up one another love and good works. This is a clear command to spur one another on, to help each other out, to encourage one another, to, 
to serve, to live rightly, to be generous, and more. So we might ask one another how we are being faithful in our work at home or our work, you know, at uh, our jobs. But what about our finances? How often are we spurring one another on in that respect? Are we pursuing excellence and righteousness in our bank account and the use of the things that God has entrusted in our care? Number eight is to give cheerfully. So God loves a cheerful giver, as indicated in 2 Corinthians 9, which we heard from last week. The people of God are to give gladly to accomplish the work he's called us to. There are many reasons to have joy in giving. One is that it is an excellent investment. So I work with investments all the time, and there is no investment that outperforms storing up treasures in heaven. You can't keep any other investments that you have. People have tried. It doesn't work. So it's a privilege to actually invest our worldly wealth into God's work. Now, someone might say that they can't give cheerfully, so they won't give. But I'd say they would have it backwards. Jesus says, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Ah, wait a sec. The treasure goes first and then the heart. So if we want to be cheerful about our giving, we have to give first. Because we want our heart to be in the right place. And then when our heart's in the right place, we do experience the good cheer that comes from giving. This is definitely true. I have experienced this in my own life. The story I told earlier about myself... I really didn't want to give, like, reluctant, uh, more than reluctant. And also, it seemed foolish. But once I did, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. A recent study, actually, said, looking at uh, people who were given $20 each, and one, uh, one group of the study participants had to spend the money on themselves, and the other group had to spend the $20 on someone else. And then a week later, they had to report how, much happy, how happy they were about what they did. Invariably, like the vast, vast majority of people who spent the money on somebody else reported much, much higher levels of happiness. The giving came first, and then the happiness. Giving worshipfully is number nine. So giving is part of our worship here. Uh, In fact, everything we do can be done for the glory of God. Our giving, our singing, hopefully not much, well, not my singing that much anyway, (laughs) The way we drive, uh, the way we exercise, the way we do our yard work, all of that can be for the glory of God. And it should, when we give our money, uh, it should be a reflexive response, uh, like all worship, to the abundant gift of grace that God has given us through his son Jesus. So there's a story in Acts 10 about a generous man named Cornelius, about how his uh, act of generosity was was, uh, an act of worship. And God commends Cornelius, and he says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And God uses Cornelius in this way, and he uses him later because of his worshipful attitude and his fear of God. Number 10 is giving proportionally. So it might seem obvious that those with large incomes and lots of assets can and should give more than those with less. Unfortunately, This is actually the opposite of what actually happens. Uh, Proportionately, uh, North American givers, so those who give to charity, uh, people with lower incomes actually give more, almost double proportionately than people with larger incomes. So this might seem a little puzzling, uh, but I can can see exactly how this happens. Uh, For all the press, the super wealthy people donating huge amounts of money uh, to charity, these statistics have remained the same for a very, very long time. So let's think about two people. 
Uh, well, I'll first, so I think that the problem actually with wealthier people not uh, giving as much proportionately as less wealthy is that rather than feeling thankful and blessed by God for our prosperity, we actually take that on ourselves, and we, we feel we deserve what we've earned. And the more we earn, the more we feel we deserve. There are many stories about this, like this in Scripture. It's hard for rich people to enter heaven. So aren't those who, are, who have been given much called to have a higher standard? In fact, Jesus tells a story in Luke 12 uh, or about servants serving a master, and after the master comes back, he's, Jesus is talking about what they've done, and it says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And, fr- and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You might or might not feel wealthy yourself, but everyone in Canada is blessed beyond measure. We've been entrusted much. And we should prayerfully consider the lifestyle we're to lead if we're to have a clear conscience about uh, giving. And rather than giving uh, you know, an arbitrary percentage, let's consider whether we might give beyond that and give lavishly to complete the, war, the Lord's work here in, here in our community and around the world. Lastly, number 11, is giving quiet, quietly. Jesus indicates in Matthew 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Then, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. For they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We should definitely all have a healthy dose of humility when giving to the Lord's work and not have aims of human accolades and praises for our good works. That said, sometimes, as I've mentioned, we need to discuss it to encourage one another because I've certainly been encouraged of stories of giving and sacrifice that other people have shared with me and I've been encouraged to give more and do more myself because of those stories. But it's not in a way that, um, that inflates the other person or makes them seem like more. It's always giving glory to God and saying, look, he moved me to act in this way. Praise him. This is the, 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 our posture that we should have. Uh, the blunt truth here, though, uh, if I'm honest, uh, this is very uncomfortable to even bring up, is that we're probably quiet about our giving for the wrong reasons. It's not because of humility. It's because we're embarrassed of how much we give. Um, that's not fun to think about, but perhaps true. Um, you know, I don't really, I have not always given as much as I feel and have felt led to give, um, but I certainly um, want that to be the case, where I'm able to say, yes, no, I, I am actually not talking about my giving because I'm just being, I don't want to toot my own horn, so to speak, as the people in the passage were talking about there. So how does generosity in our text uh, and fear, or all these fears that can grip us in life, Uh, How is it part of a righteous life? So generosity is always linked with righteousness. Whenever Jesus spoke about it, whenever the psalmist is speaking about it, generosity and righteousness are tied, completely intertwined. So if the antidote to fear about our finances is giving, as I've indicated here, and I think that we could also say that that can be broadly applied to righteous living. 
So we can uh, apply the principle of being fearless or having the fear of the Lord uh, in place of earthly fears, uh, that anything that might hold us back from living rightly is an improper fear. And we might want to think about how to uh, replace our earthly fears with a deep fear of God. So a real reverence of his holiness and appropriate knowledge, acknowledgement of his position as the creator of all, the provider of all, and sustainer of all things. The, as Hebrew says, the author and finisher of our faith. So I would suggest that there's only one way uh, to truly and completely live, uh, and that is a life without earthly fear. Following Jesus with total abandon. Easy to say, hard to do. And so what we're going to do is look at uh, the next passage that uh, just we'll read here in Luke 14. So in Luke 14, Jesus is talking uh, in verse 26 to the end of the, or to 33 about the cost of discipleship. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when, he's, <clears throat> when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him with... Who comes, meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whew. That's a tough word. Uh, Jesus really said those things. And then actually it says a bunch of people left him after that. So not surprising. Um, he never said following him would be easy. And uh, in this instance, Jesus uses a culturally common uh, teaching technique of hyperbole. That is, it's kind of like an, a gross exaggeration or a big uh, statement to really like shock people, to drive home the point of what his followers actually are called to do. And he's not, he's not exaggerating that much, actually. And I'm just going to show that how, relate, how that relates to our text today. So... What he's saying is that his followers must not cling to anything uh, at all besides him. And that we should, A, count the cost of being his disciple, that is to plan ahead and really understand what his being his follower means. And B, be willing to give up anything and everything to follow him. This, at first read, seems like a big, maybe even impossible task, but let's dig a little deeper. So, just going to do a little mental exercise here, and uh, I'm going to see if, if we all can put ourselves in the place where, where we've given everything up, and now we just have Jesus. So let's take a moment. Um, just imagine all of the things that you own, what you have, what you care about in the world the most. Picture it in your mind. You've got your work, your home, your retirement plan, your finances, your bank account, your children, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your relationships, your health, and even in your own life. We work hard on all these things. Now for a moment, imagine you're just striving to control all of that, like most of us do, juggling everything to manage it all. 
going here and there and everywhere, investing in all the right places, making the right choices, doing all the right stuff, helping everybody out, doing just, you're hustling. You're working, working, working. How do you feel about that? Are you tired? Exhausted? I'm exhausted just talking about it. I'm anxious and stressed just thinking about all of that. I'm, it feels precarious, like it could come crashing down at any moment. Are you afraid of losing everything? Scared of messing up? That's, that's this life. Now, let's imagine all those same things. All the things that you care about most in the world. But instead of attempting to be in control, let's imagine giving those things to Jesus. Your work, it's his now. Your home, it's his. Your retirement plan, that's his. Your finances, your bank account, his. Your kids, they're his. Your parents, his. Your siblings are his. Your spouse, his. All your relationships are his. Your health, in his hands. Your whole life, it's his. Send them to his trustworthy hands. It's out of your precarious hands and in his. How do you feel now? I feel rested, at peace, assured. I feel steady and confident, feel ready to take on life because it's all in Jesus' hands. I might even say I feel courageous and brave. So like our text in Psalm 112 says, why have any fear at all? Righteous living, a generous life, fully and truly living the best life possible, both now and eternally, requires us to not only be great stewards and caretakers of what God's entrusted us with, but to start, to begin with the acknowledgement that it all belongs to Jesus, and we finish those same efforts with the acknowledgement that it all belonged to Jesus all the way along. And we can rest in that beautiful promise. Our righteousness is in him. When the psalmist, says, psalmist in Psalm 112 says, the, his righteousness endures forever, he means forever. And that righteousness is not manufactured by our own efforts, but given to us by God himself through the death and resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus of Nazareth. So to encourage us with living a fearless life, with the fear of God inspiring us to live generous and righteous lives, I just want to leave you with one of my favorite verses about fearless living. And it comes, uh, Paul is writing in Romans 8 about uh, just all the inexpressible sufferings of life and all of the, the baggage and stuff that goes on and just the groanings of our spirit within us that can't even express all the anxiousness and fear we feel in life. He says, he wraps that up in Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. So there's dozens more scriptures to read to encourage you and to comfort you in your time of fear and anxiety, whether it's about your money or something else. And they've been a great comfort to me personally during my times of stress and anxiety. And I encourage you to dig deep. Go looking to the Bible for answers. It's God's word. He's spoken to us. Use it to encourage you. And I trust that you can pray for pa- with passion about this sort of thing so we can courageously live a generous and righteous life for God's glory. So 
As the worship team comes up, I'm going to just uh, close by encouraging you with some practical things that you can pray about today. And uh, one is this. uh, God does not want your money. The eternal creator, provider, and sustainer of the universe isn't short on cash. He can call upon any resource at any time beyond our wildest imagination. It's all in his power and control. His preferred way, that said, his preferred way of working in this world is through his church, his body, because it gives him great pleasure and glory to him to see his followers willingly giving, sacrificing, and following after his son Jesus. The second is this. God does want your heart to turn to him through faith in his son Jesus and acknowledging him as the Lord of your life. He wants you to, he wants to possess the key to your heart and he wants you to give that key to him, to trust it to him. If that key to your heart is your finances, give it to him. If the key to your heart is something else you're placing your hope in, give it away to him. Put it in his trustworthy hands and be prepared to, for how he might move you. Uh, I experienced that. That's what I shared at the beginning. And I can only hope that he has the same in store for you. Maybe you've already experienced that. I encourage you to encourage others with your story. Be prepared. If you need prayer today, come up and pray with people. Um, I just want to close with a word of prayer and then we'll worship God together. Oh, Lord God, it's in your hands. I, uh, I hope today that your word has moved in our hearts to move us to a generous, a wealthy generosity, uh, that we're convicted maybe to do more, that, that your words, Lord, would be um, pressed into our hearts as we go about our week. And Lord God, I just acknowledge that all things belong to you, that you actually don't require any resources from us, but that you ask us to freely give it as the keys to our heart. Lord God, bless us as we go this week. Amen.